It's happened for thousands of years. It's happened across cultures, across geographic regions, and it continues to happen to this very day. Humans have poured an immense amount of time, money, and resources into getting tanked, soused, blasted, ruined, hammered, plastered, wasted, or for the Brits out there, trolleyed, trousered, and pissed. In short, since time immemorial, people have been getting drunk. But why? So, sure, a cocktail or two is great. It leaves you feeling giddy and sociable, in backslapping high spirits, ready to befriend some strangers, to set aside your differences, and hey, why not? Maybe hand out a few hugs. But if you add to this a cocktail or two more, well, your cognitive control becomes impaired, which can lead to incoherency and aggression and vomiting, not to mention some pretty bad tattoos. And then, if we really overdo it, alcohol becomes a force of devastation. We crash our cars into telephone poles. We die of liver damage. We inflict violence on our loved ones. So the question remains... Why did we start getting drunk in the first place, and why have we kept it up for thousands of years? My name's Brian. I'm from Blinkist, and this is precisely the question I'll be answering in these blinks to Edward Slingerland's Drunk. Just a quick heads up before we begin. This blink contains some adult material, and not just about drinking. So if you're listening with children, just keep that in mind. So, we know that drinking can have devastating effects, right? And because of this, because of the devastating effects, most scientists agree that our taste for alcohol is an evolutionary accident. It's a sort of misstep on nature's part, they say. A behavior that has stuck around, even though it offers no real benefit to our species. Okay, but why would such a behavior even exist? Well, as it so happens, and maybe you know this, there are other behaviors like this. Things that humans do, even though doing them no longer serves any purpose. Or maybe it used to serve a purpose, but it doesn't anymore. These behaviors fall into two categories. There's hijacks and there are hangovers. Okay, hijacks and hangovers. I'm going to explain these categories, and then I'll get into how drinking does, or, sorry, spoiler alert, doesn't fit into them. So let's start with hijacks. A hijack is a behavior that reaps a reward that was originally meant to be generated by another behavior. Okay, that's a pretty abstract definition, so let's look at an example. A great example of a hijack is, and clutch your pearls, people, masturbation. The act of masturbating serves no evolutionary purpose. Sure, it's pleasurable and it can lead to orgasm, but orgasm evolved to reward an entirely different behavior. It evolved to reward sex. Physical pleasure and orgasm are the rewards that we're supposed to get for having sex, a behavior that does serve an evolutionary purpose. It's how we pass our genes down to the next generation and perpetuate the survival of the species. But 
we human beings, clever creatures that we are, figured out that we could hijack this pleasure, that we could have orgasms without engaging in a species-perpetuating behavior. So there it is. A hijack is any activity that reaps the reward that was supposed to be generated by a different activity. So how about a hangover? A hangover, and here comes the abstract definition, is a behavior arising from a drive that was once adaptive but isn't adaptive anymore. I told you it was going to be abstract. So here's another example. We human beings love fatty, sugary snacks. Things like french fries and potato chips and candy bars. In a word, junk food. And the jolts of pleasure that we get from eating junk food were originally meant to motivate our hunter-gatherer ancestors to go forth and find sustenance. The problem is that now, today, you'll still get those jolts of pleasure from eating sugar and fat, and this might cause you to overindulge even if you've got plenty of healthier food right there at your fingertips. In short, we're hung over. We still prefer sugar and fat to other foods, which was beneficial for our ancestors thousands of years ago, but doesn't necessarily benefit us now. So, which is it? Hijack or hangover? Or could our fondness for intoxication best be explained by another theory altogether? Okay, spoiler alert number two, though this should come as no surprise after that first spoiler alert. The author, Edward Slingerland, argues that it is not an accident that we continue to get drunk, that it's neither a hijack nor a hangover. However, it's worth exploring why many scientists think it is and why they're wrong. Okay, let's poke some holes in the hijack argument first. According to this argument, alcohol hijacks our brain's natural chemical rewards system. We've evolved so that when we engage in an activity that is beneficial to our species, like eating a nutritious meal or having sex, our brain rewards us by releasing chemicals, and we register these chemicals as pleasure. Alcohol, or so the argument goes, hijacks this system triggering the release of chemicals that were supposed to be triggered by actions conducive to our survival. In other words, according to this argument, drinking is kind of like masturbating. Both of them provide a reward. You get pleasure-giving spurts of brain chemicals when you drink. You get an orgasm when you masturbate. But these rewards are supposed to encourage different actions, like healthy eating and procreation. On the face of it, this argument seems pretty solid. But when you look a little bit closer, the cracks start to become apparent. For starters, masturbation is relatively harmless. The reason that natural selection hasn't eliminated masturbation is because it poses no existential threat to humankind. Masturbation may be a waste of time and energy, at least in evolutionary terms, but that waste is negligible. In short, masturbation is a harmless hijack. But drinking, as you know, is far from harmless. So why, if drunkenness is a mere hijack of the brain's pleasure system, hasn't natural selection eliminated it? 
The obvious answer to this question is that evolution is slow and human innovation is fast. But this doesn't quite hold water either, because evolution isn't that slow. Just one example of this, adult pastoralists were able to adapt to drinking milk within just a handful of generations, and we've been drinking alcohol for tens of thousands of years. So, so much for the hijack theory. Now let's tackle the hangover theory. The most popular hangover theory is called the drunken monkey theory, and it goes like this. Long, long ago, humans were drawn to the powerful scent of ethanol that emanated from and therefore helped them find overripe fruit. Fermented foods, like overripe fruit, are high in calories. So if you developed a taste for overripe fruit, you'd be at a caloric advantage. Hangover theorists argue that we developed our taste for alcohol not because alcohol offers any benefits to our species, but because we were searching for calories. But this argument also has a glaring weak spot. Primatologists and human ecologists point out that wild primates seem to avoid overripe fruit, and this is for sure, humans definitely prefer ethanol-free fruit to the overripe and ethanol-packed variety. So, if it's not simply a hijack, and it's not simply a hangover, if, in other words, it's not an accident, why exactly do we get drunk? The only plausible answer is that drinking must benefit our species in some way. And we know that the cost of getting drunk is massive, so the benefits must be even more massive. But what exactly are those benefits? To inch just that little bit closer toward an answer, we have to look at the unique survival challenges that humans face. And that means examining something called our ecological niche. Every species occupies a particular ecological niche, and we humans are no exception. So what is it? What exactly is an ecological niche? Well, it's the position we occupy in the world relative to other species. And it also refers to the methods we've devised for maintaining that position. It includes things like how we find food and shelter, and how we deal with other animals and with other humans. And our ecological niche is culture. Without culture and its myriad technologies, we'd be as helpless and vulnerable as a fish out of water. So to make it crystal clear how this works, let's look at an example of a basic cultural technology. Fire. Before we discovered fire, we had huge teeth and powerful jaws and complex digestive systems that could handle our rough diet of raw meat and plants. But once early humans started to cook food, physiological resources were directed to enhancing other parts of their bodies, like their brains. So our teeth shrank, our jaws weakened, our digestive system became less robust, but we became smarter. This made us more efficient, but it also made us dependent on fire. 
Today, we depend on countless cultural technologies, from agriculture to refrigeration to clothes and computers and on and on, you name it. It took millions of years, but one innovation after another eventually led to our current ecological niche, our current culture, where we live among a bunch of random people, non-relatives and strangers. This happened slowly. Thousands of years ago, when small bands of hunter-gatherers began to settle down and merge, eventually forming agricultural societies, they had to learn how to work together to cooperate with each other. To put this slightly differently, to meet the demands of their new ecological niche, our species had to become creative, communal, and cultural, what the author refers to as the three C's. Those three C's, culture, creativity, and community, set us apart from other species. Most animals tend to solve problems alone. We humans do things differently. We look for solutions provided by the accumulated insights of our culture. In the primate world, this makes us complete outliers. Unlike other apes, we've built so much trust that we can work together, kind of like ants or bees, to achieve goals that would be unattainable if we were working alone. We adhere to social norms, we labor collectively, and sometimes we even sacrifice our lives for the common good. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not hyper-aware of the dangers of manipulation and deceit. We are but we desperately want to connect with others. We want this even though we're also suspicious of their motives. In short, we're still selfish apes, but we're selfish apes with a contradiction. We don't totally trust other people, but we need them. So how do we overcome our selfish impulses and access our more generous, emotional, and community-oriented side? I'm going to explain more in the next blink, but you've probably guessed the answer. It's alcohol. You've probably heard of the prefrontal cortex. Evolutionarily speaking, it's the newest part of the human brain. It's the site of rational thinking, which is to say it's what makes us unique as humans, allowing us to focus on long-term tasks, process complex information, and engage in abstract reasoning. So from here on out, I'll be referring to this invaluable bit of anatomy as the PFC. Okay, but here's the thing about the PFC. It's wonderful, we'd be lost without it, but it's not great for collaboration and creativity, qualities that, as you know, we need in order to occupy our ecological niche. It's not great because being purely rational, which is what the PFC is all about, often results in being purely selfish. To get a better handle on this, on how the rational side of our brain is in conflict with the collaborative side, I'd like to introduce you, perhaps not for the first time, to two Greek gods, Apollo and Dionysus. Apollo, the god of the sun, personifies order and self-control. If a deity ruled the PFC, it'd be Apollo. Okay, then there's Dionysus, the god of wine. Dionysus is a sort of anti-PFC deity. He's the god of emotion and disorder and abandon, as well as drunkenness. 
He's the God that helps us embrace the three C's, our creative, communal, and cultural sides. I'm sure you're familiar with the prisoner's dilemma, so I'll try to be quick, but I am going to explain it because it does a great job of demonstrating why we need to let Dionysus take over every once in a while. Okay, here's the dilemma. Imagine you are one of two prisoners. You've both been detained and accused of committing a crime. So if you rat out the other prisoner, but the other prisoner keeps their mouth shut, you'll get a short sentence, let's say one month, and they'll get locked up for a long time, let's say four years. If you both snitch, you'll both have to do two years. If you both refuse to talk, though, you'll each get six months for obstructing justice. And if you keep quiet and the other prisoner rats you out, well, then you're going to get the four-year sentence and the other prisoner will get just one month. Right, so that's the dilemma. Now, the best option is for both people, both you and the other prisoner, to keep quiet and take the six months. But remember, you can't communicate with each other, so there's no way to work that out. Which means the rational option which ensures that you don't get the maximum sentence and that you have a shot at the minimum sentence, is to rat out the other prisoner. Now, Apollo, who's a purely rational being, would of course choose the rational option, which means Apollo can't win at the prisoner's dilemma. But Dionysus could. Because he'd be motivated by his emotions, the shame, for example, that he'd feel if he snitched, as well as his loyalty to others. Okay, so how do we access our emotional Dionysian side? Well, one method is to temporarily suspend the side of rational thinking in the brain, to suppress our Apollonian side, to take the PFC completely offline. And the simplest way to do that is to get drunk. But let's look at a more concrete example. How exactly has drinking and the Dionysian approach to life benefited humankind? Well, you'll remember that our species has developed a unique capacity to trust. But we don't trust indiscriminately. We make immediate gut-level assessments of others' trustworthiness based on reading microfacial expressions and interpreting body language and tone of voice. We're pros at differentiating between genuine and forced emotions, and we generally recognize when emotional displays are authentic and spontaneous and when they're not. In other words, we're extremely good at detecting lies. But we're also extremely good at telling them. And liars are an existential threat to any community. But... It's more difficult for people to lie when their cognitive control is weakened, say, via a PFC-disabling truth serum. So, it's no surprise that in ancient and medieval societies all over the world, any gathering involving a group of potentially hostile people was softened with intoxicants. We've long known that the sober, calculating Apollonian mind obstructs social trust. Even today, in Fiji... No village council can begin deliberations until everyone is high on kava. 
When everyone has disabled their PFC together, they can move past their suspicions and achieve social cooperation. As the Latin proverb goes, in vino veritas, in wine there is truth. Getting drunk isn't the only way to disable the PFC. It can be disabled by many intoxicants, but alcohol is the undisputed king. It's easy to consume, it's easy to make, it's easy to store, it's easy to dose. It's also easy for our bodies to break down and eliminate. And as though all those perks weren't enough, it also pairs deliciously with food. What's more, unlike other intoxicants like, for instance, cannabis, which usually produces a more introverted high, alcohol promotes extroversion and group cooperation. Furthermore, it's biphasal. That means that, at first, it instills a sense of mild euphoria, similar to the effects of cocaine. Then, as blood alcohol levels peak and start to descend, the PFC goes offline. That's when we stop processing fear and other negative emotions, and we're less affected by abstract consequences. In other words, we release our inhibitions and let our minds wander. Intoxicants provide a brief rupture from our everyday reality, a break from our Apollonian mind. Now, as you know, ditching Apollo and embracing Dionysus can help us set aside our purely rational, purely selfish impulses, making it easier for us to access our emotional side. And this is important for making human connections, for building community. But this isn't all it can do. It can also drive cultural innovation by making us more playful and creative. Exactly how does drinking accomplish this, you might ask? Well, have you ever wondered why children are so open, creative, and trusting? Here's the answer. Their PFC isn't fully developed. The PFC is the part of the brain that takes the longest to mature. And there's a reason for that. Most other species, right when they're born, are perfectly programmed for survival. But not us. Other animals might appear to create things. Maybe you've seen those crows that are able to fashion a hook from a stick, which helps them catch worms. And if you haven't, you should go Google that, because it's pretty cool. And yes, by all appearances, this looks like a form of ingenious creativity. But really, the crows, with their sticks, are just following a script that's in their DNA. We humans, though, we humans invent truly new things, things that transform the world. If a crow was actually like a human, it wouldn't be satisfied with a hook. It would invent worm farms. Unlike other species, our survival is dependent on our insights and our innovations, on our creativity. We'd be totally helpless without it. And this is why the development of the PFC is so slow. As children, we have to acquire a lot of accumulated culture before we can stick it out in the real world as adults. So the PFC takes its time to mature, allowing us to remain cognitively flexible and open for as long as possible so that we can absorb a staggering amount of information from the people around us. 
Thanks to their immature PFCs, children are terrible at planning, and they're not very rational or efficient. But openness and out-of-the-box thinking, well, that's where they shine. And these are also the qualities that keep our species growing and evolving and innovating. So how can we channel our inner child and tap into our creativity? Well, one study showed that adult subjects performed better on creativity tasks when their PFCs were temporarily zapped into submission with a transcranial magnet. But the thing is, transcranial magnets are recent inventions. Plus, they're unwieldy, they're expensive, and they're not exactly party-friendly. So, for now, we're stuck with the PFC-disabling technologies we discovered thousands of years ago, foremost among them, alcohol. Creativity is what drives cultural innovation. And so, the ideal human is a person who can remain on task and delay gratification, but who can also take on, for brief periods, the mind of a child. In other words, the ideal human is an adult who sometimes gets, whether literally or figuratively, drunk. So, drunkenness drives creativity, and creativity drives cultural innovation. That's great. But what's an example of this in action? Well, I've got a fun one for you. It's an innovation that's as old as agriculture itself. Well, actually, it might even be a little older than that, but I don't want to give away too much. It's the story of how we discovered beer. About 10,000 years ago, some of our especially canny hunter-gatherer ancestors began to experiment with planting seeds from wild grains and legumes. Over time, this eventually led to the development of settled agricultural communities. Then, at some point, Early farmers with surplus yields, so a little bit of grain lying around, realized that if they left that grain mashed up in water, it would transform into something else. Something kind of funky, but not unpleasant. A concoction that produced mild, enjoyable psychoactive effects if consumed. A concoction that we know as beer. So this is how the standard story goes. That after humans mastered farming they discovered beer. In this telling, beer is kind of incidental. Beer is just a minor character in the evolutionary drama. Agriculture is the star. All right, so here's where things get interesting. In the 1950s, some scientists began to raise their eyebrows at this timeline of events, pointing to evidence of large-scale gatherings from the 10th to 8th millennia BCE. These communal feasts, which included dancing, religious rituals, and sacrifices, were almost certainly fueled by alcohol. There's also evidence of a 14,000-year-old bread and or beer-making site in Jordan. Agriculture wouldn't emerge for another 4,000 years, which means bread was still thousands of years away from becoming a dietary staple. That means the site was most likely where our hunter-gatherer ancestors brewed beer for their parties. Scholars who advocate for the beer-before-bread theory, as it's called, believe it was our desire to get drunk that gave rise to agriculture, not the other way around. The Neolithic transition to agriculture was stressful, 
We had to form new communities, work with other people, collaborate, adjust to a totally new lifestyle. It was stressful. And stress, according to many studies, can be relieved, especially in social situations, by consuming alcohol. And so, people drank. But drinking didn't only help people handle stress. It also helped them bond with each other, strengthening the social ties in these incipient communities. So there you have it. Alcohol may well have fueled the demise of the hunter-gatherer way of life and ushered in the era of agriculture and settled communal living. If that's not a cultural innovation, well, I'm not sure what is. So, drinking. Thousands and thousands of years ago, some hapless, apish ancestor of ours discovered the pleasures of drunkenness, perhaps after eating one too many fermented fruits. This was an accident. But the fact that we've continued drinking for millennia is no accident at all. Drinking has benefited our species in many important ways. It helped us become creative, communal, and cultural, the three C's that enable us to occupy our ecological niche. In fact, drinking may have fueled the formation of our ecological niche, both driving the transition to agriculture and easing that transition's attendant stresses. Since then, it's helped us access our more playful, emotional Dionysian side, which is good for community bonding and creativity, which are the cornerstones of cultural innovation. In short, alcohol has played a complex social and cultural role throughout human history. And it continues to play this role. However, there's no denying the harm it can inflict. Today, some 15% of the population is susceptible to alcoholism, although some countries have more of a problem than others. The rate of alcoholism is lower in countries like Italy and Spain, where alcohol is a part of everyday social life. In these southern drinking cultures, a glass of wine or beer is a normal element of mealtime, and children are exposed to alcohol at a young age, so there's no taboo surrounding it. Binge drinking is frowned upon, as is drinking alone, and distilled spirits aren't especially common. Meanwhile, in northern drinking cultures like that of Russia and Finland, people drink less often, but when they do drink, they binge. Drinking is considered a primary activity, and distilled spirits are common. Drinking alone is not as stigmatized, and the rate of alcoholism is high. Alcoholism is also rampant in the United States, with its culture of extreme individualism and scattered suburban living. Unless you reside in a big city, having a local bar or cafe is pretty rare. Social drinking is inconvenient or impossible for many Americans. It's much easier to pick up booze at your local convenience store and drink it at home. This privacy around drinking encourages taboo, which makes young people more likely to abuse alcohol. Alcohol balances a fine line between order and chaos. So when it comes to certain situations, it might be time to replace it with other PFC disarming tools. Microdosing psychedelics, for example, could provide the creativity boost we need without causing addiction or liver damage. 
and maybe office holiday parties would be better off as breakfast affairs with one mimosa maximums. Making the case for alcohol in the modern age is complicated, considering how it can ravage individual lives and communities. But since it's probably not going anywhere for a while, we must at least ensure that our debates about its role are informed by our best scientific and anthropological scholarship, not by moralism and debunked science. By acknowledging both the dangers and the benefits of alcohol, we can practice getting drunk mindfully, so we can continue to thrive as the bizarre, successful species of ape that we are. All right, those were our blinks to Drunk by Edward Slingerland. At the very beginning of these blinks, you heard some music, a very famous composition. It was Azo Sprach Zarathustra, composed by Richard Strauss, and it was made available under a Creative Commons attribution license by Kevin McLeod. So, thank you, Kevin. All right, I hope you enjoyed yourself. My name's Brian, thanks for listening, and see you in the next blink. <laughs>